Thank you very much, President O'Donnell. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back here uh, at the top of the Shenandoah. I'm sorry I wasn't able to be with you here, what was that, last March we were supposed to be doing this? But the weather got in the way. The weather could not have been more cooperative uh, this time. So it's great to be with you all. I wish you a, a wonderful here, year here at this wonderful place. In 1960, the commission preparing the preparation for the Second Vatican Council, known in typical Vatican speak as the Anti-Preparatory Commission, A-N-T-E, the Preparatory Commission before the Preparatory Commission, sent a letter to all of the bishops of the world asking them what they thought this impending ecumenical council should discuss. If you go to a particularly well-equipped theological library today, you can find the answers to that in the first six or seven volumes of what are called the Acta, the Acts of the Second Vatican Council. Um, it's clear from those six or seven volumes of, of answers that most of the world's bishops expected a rather short council that would take care of a bit of ecclesiastical housekeeping and then everybody would be home by Christmas. Uh, perhaps the most intriguing of those letters from the point of view of those of us who live in Washington came from the Archbishop of Washington, Patrick J. O'Boyle, who like many other bishops around the world sent in his laundry list of church housekeeping items that he thought Vatican II should attend to. But then evidently being advised that he might look a little better if he put a big think question in the letter, uh, he said uh, in his seventh item that the council should pronounce in light of the doctrines of creation and redemption on the possibility of intelligent life on other planets, <laughs> which sounds even funnier in Latin. Um, <laughs> And when I read that for the first time in an archive <clears throat> in Rome, I burst out laughing and the archivist said, what's so funny? And I said, well, after 20 years of living in the town, if I were the Archbishop of Washington, I would want to inquire as to the possibility of intelligent life in my own diocese <laughs> before I got going on other planets. Then in the midst of all of these housekeeping letters comes a letter from a very young 40-year-old auxiliary bishop of Krakow, whom I'm sure uh, virtually no one in Rome had thought about since his nomination as a bishop two years before, Karol Wojtyla. And he doesn't send in a laundry list of ecclesiastical housekeeping. He sends in a philosophical essay. And in that essay, he says, what happened? Here we are in the middle of a 20th century that began with 
enormous hopes for the human future, great confidence in science, and in the first five decades, that century in which we're living had produced two world wars, three totalitarian systems, the greatest persecution of the church in history, mountains of corpses, oceans of blood, human suffering on an unprecedented scale. What had happened? And then he suggested an answer. What had happened was that the great project of Western humanism had, over the previous 300 years or so, gone off the rails because of defective ideas of the human person. When you get your idea of the human person wrong, you're going to get your politics wrong, you're going to get your culture wrong, you're going to get your economics wrong, and get your society wrong, etc. And therefore, this uh, Bambino Vescovo, this baby bishop from Krakow said, the Second Vatican Council should take as its goal the rescue of the Western humanistic project by reproposing Jesus Christ as the answer to the question that is every human life. Carol Wojtyla, both as apostolic administrator of the Archdiocese of Krakow and later as its archbishop from March 1964 on, brought that strategic vision, if you will, to all four sessions of the, Vatican, uh, of the Second Vatican Council. And you can see the imprint of that intuition in two of the texts of Vatican II from the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, which just happened to be the two most cited Vatican II texts in the extensive magisterium of John Paul II. As you know, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World was called in Latin Gaudium et Spes, so GS 22, Gaudium et Spes 22, says that in the face of the Father of Mercies, we learn the truth about God, but we also learn the truth about ourselves. That Jesus reveals to us both the truth of the Father and the truth of the human person. And then in GS 24, Gaudium et Spes 24, there's that famous statement that has been so fruitful, uh, particularly in Catholic moral theology, but in, in uh, Catholic philosophical anthropology as well, a statement that is only in making a sincere gift of himself to others that the human person comes to the fullness of his or her own humanity, what Wojtyla would later call the law of the gift, the law of self-giving, hardwired uh, into us by the creator. This strategic vision of John Paul II, of the bishop who would become John Paul II, 13 years after the conclusion of the, of the council, makes him 
his pontificate, and that council a kind of hinge point in the 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church. A turning in which a new era of Catholic life is opening up, even as we gather here in this beautiful part of the world tonight. An era that is Christ-centered and dedicated first and foremost to the proclamation of the gospel, an era that John Paul II came to call the church of the new evangelization. Now in order to understand just how dramatic is this moment in church history, which may explain some of the air turbulence of the past 50 years in church history, it's important to take a look back a moment at the four previous moments of similar historic transition. It's the same church over 2,000 years because it's the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism. But over those 2,000 years, the mode of being Catholic has changed to meet the demands of the proclamation of the gospel. And it has changed because of the church's encounter with and the church's attempt to shape the culture of its time. The first of these moments of transition came very early. It came, one could date it perhaps at 70 AD, when what would become the Christian movement definitively parted ways with what would become rabbinic Judaism at the time of the first Jewish-Roman war and the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. This was the way of being Catholic. We, always, we sometimes call it the early church that we see, we read about, we meet in the Acts of the Apostles and in the sub-apostolic uh, literature, like the letter to Diognetus, the letter of Pope Clement, and so forth and so on. That early church, a church of enormous evangelical power, a church that in a mere 250 years converted, scholars now suggest, perhaps as much as half of the Mediterranean world by the time that Constantine brought the church fully into legal uh, above ground life in Rome, that early church <clears throat> then gave way to, even as it gave birth to in the second of these great transitions, what we call the patristic church, the church of the fathers, the church in its encounter with classic Greco-Roman civilization. This is the church of Augustine, the church of Ambrose, the church of the great Eastern fathers, Basil and Gregory, the church of Gregory the Great and Leo the Great. That patristic way of being Catholic from on which we still feed today, those of you who pray the liturgy of the hours every day know that in the office of readings, 
probably two-thirds of that <clears throat> material, if it's not biblical material, comes to us from the fathers of the church. An enormously fecund, fertile encounter between gospel and culture, and that lasted about 500 years through the end of the first millennium. And then, as Christianity began to encounter what was then called the new learning, which was really the recovery of the lost learning of the ancient world, particularly the philosophy of Aristotle, a third transition took place as the patristic church gave birth to, even as it gave way to, what we know as medieval Christendom. The church of Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus, often said to be the last man in human history who knew everything there was to know. Thomas Aquinas, Dominic, Francis of Assisi, Bonaventure, Catherine of Siena, a remarkably spiritually rich and intellectually rich way of being Catholic that created in the Europe of that time perhaps the closest synthesis between church, culture, and society that has been achieved in the first 2,000 years of Christian history. It was a great period in the life of the church, the period that came out of this third great transition. When I was a boy growing up in Baltimore, if you were a intellectually interested, adventurous seventh grader, you were given a book that had been written in the 1920s called The 13th, The Greatest of Centuries. Anybody here over 50 remember that one, Tim, President O'Donnell does? I uh, had a look at it recently. It's got some interesting stuff in it, particularly about the medieval universities. Uh, I did have the thought at the time th uh, that I looked at it most recently, though, that I'm, you know, I'm prepared to make the argument that the 13th was the greatest of centuries. If you add to the 13th century anesthesia, modern dentistry, penicillin, and single malt scotch. <clears throat> then you've got a really great century. Okay. <clears throat> that, that medieval Christendom had another 500 year or so run until in the fourth great transition, medieval Christendom fractured in the Reformation in Western Europe and out of that fracturing of Western Christendom came the Catholicism that everyone in this room over 50 years old grew up in. What we call the Church of the Counter-Reformation. The church shaped profoundly by the Council of Trent, the church that produced Extraordinary figures, Ignatius of Loyola, Charles Borromeo, Francis de Sales, the patroness of my parish in Bethesda, St. Jane Francis de Chantal. This was the Catholicism, the form of Catholicism that brought Christianity to the Western Hemisphere. 
brought Christianity to Virginia in the 17th century. This was the form of Catholicism that withstood the assault of political modernity beginning with the French Revolution, continuing through the German Kulturkampf, the Italian Risorgimento, and so forth and so on. And it was largely the form of Catholicism that successfully resisted the greatest persecution of the church in history under communism. And when Dr. and Mrs. O'Donnell and Mr. O'Haran and others of a certain ripeness of age here among us tonight and me were growing up uh, in it, it seemed unchangeable. It seemed that this is the way the church had always been. This is the way the church always would be. We knew from catechism that the four marks of the church were that it was one holy Catholic and apostolic, but there was a subtle sense that there was a fifth mark of the church, immutability. One holy Catholic apostolic, and it's always been this way, and it's always going to be this way. Well, we now know that that fifth marker was not a true one, because even as we were living in what we thought of as a kind of high watermark in the modern history of the church, we were in fact living at the beginnings of the moment of transition that Carol Wojtyla's letter to the Anti-Preparatory Commission of Vatican II indicated. A moment of transition compelled by dramatic changes in world culture, in world history, in world politics, and in the very idea of the human person. So, we are now living in the fifth such dramatic moment of major change in the history of the Catholic Church. And that, I think, explains some of the turbulence. That change, I should note, and I discuss this in far more detail in the book Evangelical Catholicism, did not begin at Vatican II, nor did it begin with Carol Wojtyla's letter to the Anti-Preparatory Commission in 1960. It actually began in the early years of my grandmother's life in 1878, when Pope Leo XIII took, at the very beginning of his pontificate, a great strategic decision that the church would engage the modern world, culturally, politically, economically, science, etc., but it would engage it with distinctively Catholic tools. It would not surrender, the Catholic church would not surrender to modernity, which so much of liberal Protestantism was already doing in Europe. The church would engage modernity in order to try to convert modernity. And those of you who know Rome know that in the Basilica of St. John Lateran, uh, Leo XIII's tomb, which is just to the left of the apse, uh, embodies this strategic vision of engagement for the sake of conversion. Because 
Leo is not depicted in the statue, in the sculpture, you know, lying on his back on top of the tomb with his hands piously folded in expectation of a glorious resurrection, which is exactly how Innocent III, across the apse from him, is portrayed. He's standing up, and his right foot is thrust forward, and his right hand is up in the air like this, as if he's saying to the modern world, we have something to talk about. We have a proposal to make to you. And over the course of what was then the second longest pontificate in reliably recorded history, until he was topped by John Paul II, Leo XIII set in motion the dynamics of renewal of which we are living through the results right now. It was Leo XIII who created modern Catholic biblical studies. It was Leo XIII who tried to give the church an old but new way to engage intellectual modernity, the crisis in philosophy that had begun with Descartes and continued through other notable figures in the history of European thought, by renewing the church's study of the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas in the original, not Aquinas filtered through commentators, but Aquinas neat, if you will. Uh, that seemed to him an appropriate, particularly supple tool for which the church could meet the claims of intellectual modernity. It was Pius, uh, sorry, Leo XIII, who began the modern study of the history of the church by opening the Vatican archives to qualified scholars of all faiths or no faith on the understanding that the church itself would benefit from an accurate understanding of its history. And of course, as all of you know, it was Leo XIII who created modern Catholic social doctrine with the encyclical Rerum Novarum of 1891, which began this uh, remarkable 100-year tradition of a distinctively Catholic reflection on modernity in its political incarnation its economic incarnation and its social incarnation. The ripples that Leo XIII set loose in the church passed through the first decades of the 20th century until another pope elected 80 years precisely after Leo XIII, John XXIII, decided to take that energy and focus it through the prism of an ecumenical council, the Second Vatican Council. And why was the church to gather in Rome for four several month-long periods in the fall months of 1962, 63, 64, and 65? So that it could meet the Lord again so that it could experience what John the 23rd called a new Pentecost. And why would you want to a new, experience a new Pentecost? Not to just get high on a Sunday afternoon, but to go out and convert the world. To go out and convert the world. John Paul II, in his interpretation of the Second Vatican Council, 
focus that intention through the image of the new evangelization, or what I have come to call, uh, as have others, evangelical Catholicism. What is this? It's a Catholicism of radical discipleship in which we are to understand that our Catholic faith is not one facet of our identity, but that from which everything else about us flows. That's not quite the way the Counter-Reformation Church thought of these things. Counter-Reformation Church thought of discipleship as kind of membership, membership in a club, if you will. But the club had fairly limited demands. This new vision of being the church of the new evangelization places far greater demands on all of us. It will be a church of lifetime <coughs> learning, lifelong catechesis. About 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe now, I was asked to be the confirmation sponsor for a very fine young man. And at the uh, dinner with his family, after the uh, sacrament had been conferred, <coughs> excuse me, this is my first talk in two months. My uh, throat is not in uh, fighting trim here yet. Um, so anyway, at dinner after the confirmation, uh, I said, so, uh, Greg, what was that all about? What did that mean? And he said, well, what that means is that religion class is over. <laughs> Cute, but wrong. Um, in the Church of the New Evangelization, religion class is never over. A lifetime of immersion in the Bible is essential to be a radically converted disciple because that's a disciple who meets the Lord every day, meets the word of God, Jesus Christ, in the word of God, the Bible. It's a church of lifelong study. Father was telling me that uh, your first year theology class here uses the catechism as one of its basic texts, the catechism of the Catholic Church. That should be your companion the rest of your life, even as it opens you up to lifelong learning about the extraordinary riches of Catholic faith. There is always something new to learn about the Catholic Church, not just as a matter of intellectual fascination, although that's certainly there, but as a matter of deepening that discipleship. The Church of the New Evangelization is a church, will be a church, must be a church of an enriched sacramental life. The Church of the Counter-Reformation at one point had such a hard time convincing people that they should receive Holy Communion that the church had to adopt a law, one of the so-called laws of the church, that you had to receive Holy Communion every once a year, called the Easter duty. 
And if you were in a state of grave sin, you had to receive the sacrament of penance in order to do that. I mean, that's not a sacramentally rich church. But where the Church of the New Evangelization begins is with baptism. I can't see four-fifths of you, but let's take a little survey, and maybe I'll sneak down and look. How many of you here tonight, raise your hand, know the date of your baptism? Better than usual, but still under 10%. <laughs> this is true everywhere. This is tr Why is this important? Let me tell you why it's important. 30 years ago, when I first started working in Washington, D.C. with evangelical Protestants, I was very struck by how these people introduced themselves at a meeting. Most Americans put together with 12 people they've never seen before, introduce themselves by saying what they do. I'm so-and-so when I'm a lawyer, I'm so-and-so when I'm a doctor, I'm so-and-so when I'm a librarian, I'm so-and-so when I'm a teacher. We identify ourselves by what we do. That is not what these guys did. They would go around and say, I'm John Smith and I was born again on such and such a day, usually 10 or 15 years ago. I'm Jane Doe and I was born again on such and such a day. Well, it would come around to me and always eager to open up uh, minds and hearts, I would say, I'm George Weigel and I was born again on April 29th, 1951, at which point I was precisely 12 days old which would get some interesting conversations going about sacramental grace, baptismal regeneration, and so forth. But the more I thought about this, the more impressed I was by it. This meant something to these folks. And then when I was writing the first volume of the John Paul II biography, I was struck by the fact that when he went to his home parish in the little town of Vadovica outside of Krakow, on his first papal trip home in 1979. This is the church he had made his first communion in, been confirmed in, been an altar boy in, gone to confession in, received the scapular in, prayed in every day, was right across the street from his apartment. What's the first thing he did in that church? He made a beeline for the baptismal font and he knelt down and he kissed it because he knew that was the most important day of his life. Not the day he was ordained a priest or consecrated a bishop or elected the pope. The most important day of his life was the day of his baptism because that's the day he became a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ and was given a missionary commission. So sometime, maybe when you go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, uh, ask your folks to get out the file where they keep the Catholic paper and uh, learn the date of your baptism, memorize it, celebrate it every year. Because it's baptism that opens us up to the mystery of the Eucharist on which we are fed by the Lord himself on himself. It's baptism which gives real meaning to the sacrament of penance, because in the sacrament of penance, we bring all of the problems of being missionary disciples to the Lord and the person of his priest 
so that by receiving the divine mercy, we can go out and not just do better, but be better missionaries, be better witnesses. And the fourth thing that is distinctive about this Church of the New Evangelization or Evangelical Catholicism is that it is a church, it must be a church, which understands that it exists for mission and that everyone and everything in it must be measured by mission effectiveness. In the tail end of Counter-Reformation Catholicism, when I was growing up, mission territory was exotic places far away, generally featured in National Geographic, in articles that the nuns would cut certain pictures out of so that the eighth grade boys wouldn't get too excited. Um, that's different. That's different today. Mission territory is everywhere. I say to Catholics in parishes, mission territory is your kitchen table, it's your neighborhood association, it's certainly your business, it's your life as a citizen, as a consumer. This great college is both a launch pad for mission and it's mission territory because we can be missionaries for each other. Fifteen or so years ago, I was driving between Dallas and Fort Worth, which is not exactly like driving into the Shenandoah Valley uh, from an aesthetic point of view. Um, and I noticed this enormous Pentecostal megachurch. And it had a vast parking lot. You probably could put 5,000 cars in it. Um, and I noticed that each exit of the parking lot had a similarly shaped sign, so I drove into this empty parking lot on a, whatever it was, a Wednesday, and saw what the sign said. Every one of those 10,000 people who had been in this huge evangelical dome uh, drove home past a sign that said, you are entering mission territory. Catholics need to get that sign inside our heads. The missions are not just where brave women and men go to convert the heathens. Mission territory is right here. The United States today is profoundly mission territory. Now, this transition in the self-understanding of the church has come a transition that you might sum up very briefly as one that shifts us from institutional maintenance to evangelical mission, has come just in time. 50 or 60 years ago, at the end of that Counter-Reformation period, when Many of us in this room, or at least some of us in this room, were learning the Baltimore Catechism uh, and so forth. The culture, the air around us, the ambient public culture, supported what the sisters, the brothers, the priests, our parents and grandparents were teaching us. I happen to grow up in a very Catholic city, 
So that was perhaps particularly noticeable. But I think it was true all over the place. That is no longer the case today. The ambient public culture is not supportive of the transmission of the faith. It's not neutral about the faith. It is actively hostile to the faith. You can't go to Tyson's Corner or Montgomery Mall or any other such place in our country today and not have your senses assaulted at all points along the line by counter signals to the gospel. So what that means is that Catholicism by the cultural transmission belt or the ethnic transmission belt has no future. The only Catholicism with a future is intentional Catholicism. 50 years from now in the United States, maybe 30 years from now in the United States, no one is going to answer the question, why are you a Catholic, by saying, I am a Catholic because my great-grandmother was born in County Mayo, or Palermo, or Krakow, or Munich, or wherever. That's gone. The idea that you wear your Catholicism as a kind of ethnic marker has no possibility of withstanding the assault from the ambient public culture. So in order to have the courage to be countercultural and to be countercultural not simply to say no, but to call this crippled culture in which we live to a higher yes, to do what Wojtyla wanted Vatican II to do, to repropose Jesus Christ as the answer to the question of every, that is every human life, because that is what will west, rescue the Western world. That's what the Catholicism of the 21st century must take up. That means that the Catholic college and university of the 21st century and the third millennium exists to equip disciples for mission. It exists to deepen the human and intellectual formation of witnesses to Christ. As Pope Benedict XVI said at Catholic University of America in 2008, facilitating personal witness, personal friendship with Jesus Christ and communal witness to his uh, loving truth is indispensable to Catholic institutions of higher learning. But there's more to this than that. Because in addition to equipping witnesses to Christ for the evangelical mission into which all of you were baptized, the Catholic University of the 21st century and the third millennium must also, as John Paul II insisted, be a rescuer, a rescuer of Western civilization. This 
enterprise we call the West, Western civilization, the civilization of the Western world, is built on three foundations. Think of it as a stool with three legs. The three legs are Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome. Biblical religion, the God of the Bible, calls human beings into a life of pilgrimage, adventure, a sense of history as having forward movement. Athens, the Greek classical heritage, confidence in the ability of human reason to get at the truth of things. Rome, the superiority of law over coercion in ordering society. That's the West, Jerusalem, Athens, Rome. What has happened over the past century and a half is that first the Jerusalem leg was kicked out from under the stool, particularly in Europe in the 19th century, culminating in the so-called God is dead uh, movement of the 20th century. And all of this was done, oddly enough, in the name of, of human liberation. The God of the Bible had to be thrown over the side so that human beings could be mature and so forth and so on. Well, we saw where that got us in the 20th century, uh, which was not into a very good place, and yet that remains the dominant high cultural ideal throughout much of the Western world. But what happened was, it turns out, when you knock out the Jerusalem leg of the stool, the Athens leg gets wobbly. Because absent the conviction, which we get from the Bible and from the, particularly from the book of Genesis, that God imprinted the divine reason into the world. God left a stamp on the creation, which makes creation intelligible, which makes it possible for us to get at the built-in truth of things. If you throw that God of the Bible out, then reason starts to doubt its own capacity to get at the truth of things. And we get at best, well, there's your truth and my truth, but there's nothing properly called the truth. Okay, if the, if the Jerusalem leg is gone and the Athenian leg gets whittled away or rotten and now you got a stool with one leg. That's not a stable platform. And we now see the Roman leg, the commitment to the rule of law, shaking and crumbling too. Because if there's only your truth and my truth, and neither one of us recognizes something called the truth against which we can argue out our differences, how are we going to settle the difference? There's only one way. Nietzsche saw it in the late 19th century. You will impose your power on me, or I will impose my power on you. And that's the end of the rule of law. And that's the beginning of what Benedict XVI called the dictatorship of relativism, to which we are, frankly, perilously close in the United States today particularly after the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court this past 
German. Evangelical Catholicism has to be about the conversion of the world, but also the rescue of Western civilization. Because here is where there is a gathered mass of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people who, if properly on fire with the gospel, could rebuild the Jerusalem leg of the Western civilizational project, could then strengthen the commitment to reason and the rule of law. And that means that in addition to converting the world, being witnesses to Christ, being rescuers of Western civilization, the Catholic University of the 21st century and the third millennium exists to equip the leaders of the future to be rescuers of democracy. Democracy and decadence cannot coexist indefinitely. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen the show Cabaret, seen the movie set in Weimar, Germany during the period right before the rise of, of Hitler and the Nazis. That failed political experiment, Weimar, the German Republic between the First World War, the end of the First World War and the rise of Hitler, was a great shadow experience in the mind of John Paul II. Here was this beautifully constructed democratic machine. One of the designers of its constitution was the great social scientist Max Weber. Balance, separation of powers, so forth and so on. And yet when the cultural pressures became intolerable, the whole thing crumbled. The whole thing crumbled because the cultural foundation was not secure enough. I'm not suggesting we're on the verge of the rise of some variant on German National Socialism here. I am suggesting that the notion that our democracy or any democracy uh, can long endure absent a solid cultural foundation, absent agreed moral reference points within which to conduct the public argument, that democracy cannot long endure. So in equipping the students of the present and the leaders of tomorrow with the conviction that they were baptized to be witnesses to Christ, in giving them the intellectual equipment to be renewers of Western civilization, informing in them the conviction that they can be and must be rescuers of democracy. Catholic universities in this century and this millennium perform a vital public task. And it is great to be back here in Front Royal and at Christendom College where all of these things have been understood. Perhaps not put exactly the way I've put them, not sure Dr. Carroll would be entirely comfortable with the phrase evangelical Catholicism, but uh, the sentiment is, is exactly the same and the intention is the same. 
There's one other thing I might uh, mention uh, in closing, and that is that Catholic institutions of higher learning like this are expressions of what John Paul II used to call the symphony of truth. It's not that you just learn things here, it's that you learn how to put things together here so that the different instruments in the orchestra of truth play in a harmonic and melodic way. Much of American higher education today is not harmony, it's cacophony. It's craziness. Because there's no directing principle out of which things are put together. That is what this college and others like it will do for you and for the students who come after you. It will get you to see the mosaic, to vary the image, that forms out of these different beautiful pieces of glass. It'll get you to see, to vary the image yet again, what Henry James called the figure in the tapestry. It'll get you to see how it fits together so that you can be witnesses to Christ, renewers of the civilization of the West, and rescuers of democracy. So what you do here in this little corner of the upper Shenandoah and how well you do it are matters of urgency far beyond this lovely part of the world. What you do here can be, should be, and in some sense must be world transforming. Thank you. Thank you. We've got about 10 minutes for some questions. I, yeah, there's a, I guess you're supposed to come up here or this gentleman is going to, since I can't see anything, uh, there we go. First of all, Mr. Royal, thanks for being with us and thanks very much for your talk and, and your encouragement. Um, I do have a question for you about um, your paradigm for understanding the transition from the Church of the Counter-Reformation uh, into the, the Church of the New Evangelization, the Evangelical Catholic Church. Um, because on the one hand, it seems like a lot of your critique of the Counter-Reformation Church applies most obviously as a critique of the 1950s and the experience of the 50s, much more so than as a critique of the, the Reformation era. Um, but Pope Benedict and other figures who were involved in the council um, have placed a lot of their emphasis on a hermeneutic of continuity. And, and there's an emphasis on, on kind of radical continuity. And it, one could take your interpretation as being advocacy for a hermeneutic of radical rupture or discontinuity, not only rupture in the 20th century, but rupture several times throughout the history of the church. And um, so I, I was wondering if you could ar articulate, I'm, I'm sure you, know, you can, C can you articulate for us a way of salvaging a hermeneutic of continuity, um, which seems to be a big part of the challenge for being evangelical Catholics today. Well, one, one could say that. 
But then as Richard Nixon famously said, that would be wrong. Um, you will have noticed, I hope, that at each point in these transitions, having already said that it was the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, and the same church, I said that the early church gave birth to, even as it gave way to, the patristic church, which gave birth to, even as it gave way to, medieval Christendom, which gave birth to, even as it gave way to, counter-reformation Catholicism, which I think I said a lot of nice things about. Converted the Western Hemisphere, survived the assault of political modernity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My point is simply that uh, this history makes clear that continuity expresses itself in different forms and modes of being Catholic over time. If that had not happened, then the church would have remained a small group of Jewish sectarians stuck on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. If the church had not met particularly Greek culture, it could not have transformed kerygma, Jesus is Lord, into creed and doctrine. It needed those intellectual tools in order to do that. Absent the encounter with Aristotle, the church would not have to this day, from the medieval inheritance, the most acute set of tools to analyze moral problems that have been developed in 2,000 years. So, that's what I would say about that. Then I would point out that the exponent of the hermeneutic of continuity, whom I have known since 1988 and have been honored to call a friend, was one of the principal architects of what I take to be the two central documents of the Second Vatican Council, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, Dei Verbum, which explicitly in paragraphs seven and eight which are prominently featured in the first section of the book, Evangelical Catholicism, affirms the reality and truth of divine revelation. And then Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church. Uh, what I'm describing is the church groping towards a way to deal with a post-religious world um, in the West. Now, it's a big church and it's a big world. And the notion that modernity inevitably involves secularization has been pretty well falsified everywhere except Western Europe and North America. So we have a vibrant Catholicism in Africa uh, which bears all of the marks of this evangelical impulse that I described. We have dying churches in Western Europe who are the churches who adopted 
the hermeneutic of rupture at Vatican II. This is going to be one of the subtexts of the Synod next month. So what I'm describing is entirely in continuity, but it under, it's a vision of the development of the church's history that understands that you cannot freeze frame the history uh, if the evangelical task is to be undertaken. So thanks for uh, bringing that up. Yeah. Mm, hi. Mr. Weigel, thank you so much for, for, for your wonderful talk. Uh, I'd like to kind of t touch on a point and ask you a question about a, uh, something you had said uh, later in the talk. You had uh, what seemed to, uh, to, to me to form a dangerous dichotomy between uh, the, in, the internal maintenance of the church and uh, the evangelical mission of, uh, of the church. Uh, could you perhaps elaborate on that a little more? And whether, uh, do you think that we are at the stage where we can uh, in some way uh, not, not, not focus as much on the internal maintenance of, of, of the church and uh, in strengthening the lives, especially the interior lives on the, of the individual believer? And we need to focus more uh, on the evangelical mission uh, to the detriment of uh, the, the, you know, the, the internal uh, yeah, yeah. machine of the church. Uh, could you speak to that a little more? It just seemed to, to, to me to be a, a, a little dangerous. Well, I'm used to being called dangerous, but not by, <laughs> not by people like you. Um, uh, the, the phrase I used was institutional maintenance, not internal maintenance. Church has always got to be about the maintenance internally of the integrity of the faith. That's why we have a congregation for the doctrine of the faith. Uh, and the church is not free to make up its internal constitution in the British sense of the term. That was given it by Christ. And that is truly irreformable. Um, and I make rather a big point about that in the, in the book, Evangelical Catholicism, that all reform if in the church, if it's authentically Catholic, is for the sake of, all, all reform means reaching back to that form which Christ gave the church and giving it a fresh expression today. What I was trying to convey by the phrase institutional maintenance over against a uh, more evangelical sense of mission is that in, to go back to the happy 50s, um, uh, the institutions in a sense existed for their own sake. The mega institution was stable there were new people coming in all the time by this ethnic transmission belt I was describing. And certainly the Catholic schools I attended from kindergarten through graduate school did not think of themselves as missionary enterprises or equipping people whose Christian faith and baptism required them to live evangelically. So what I I'm suggesting is that it's not a dichotomy, it's that 
the institutions be maintained, indeed grown, in order to be platforms for the launching of the new evangelization. And that, that applies to every institution in the church, whether it's a diocese, a parish, a school, a religious order, uh, a Catholic charities office, whatever. Those things are to be sustained, I'd rather say that, uh, sustained and developed in order to be launch platforms for the new evangelization. That is a different cast of mind than existed 50 years ago. And I think it's the cast of mind that the council, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and I might add Pope Francis are calling us to. So thank you. Maybe one more here. Hi. Um, you said that uh, Jesus Christ is the answer to the question, which is human life. Which but is every human uh, yeah, life. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but what, what exactly does that mean, the question, which is every human life? It means your life is a question. It means that your life and my life are open-ended, can go in various directions, are often confusing to us, are marked by both light and shadows. And that makes each of us a question, a question to ourselves, sometimes a question to others. Uh, but it makes our lives a question. This is a John Paul II phrase, by the way. It's not mine. And the answer to that question, as Gaudium et Spes 22 suggests, is Jesus Christ because in the luminous humanity of Christ, we see the answers to the questions, who am I, how shall I live, what is noble and what is base, what is fulfilling and what is degrading, is there any purpose to all of this? I mean, those are real questions. Um, and the answers to those, uh, Christians find in what some find an utterly paradoxical way in the feast we celebrate today. The exaltation of the Holy Cross and the completion of that exaltation in the resurrection. So that's, that's what I meant by that. Does that help? Good. Yes, sir. I, I just had a, um, you touched my heart with that, uh, the question you, you had about continuity. Yeah. And I was, wasn't supposed to be here today, but things transpired that I was able to uh, attend. And I, I was thinking about, I want everyone to get along and, and uh, have a Catholic identity since we're Catholics. And I thought about that we're called to heaven, that Jesus wants us to, to be in heaven so that if you're in heaven, you're a saint. And I, uh, sacramentally, I, to achieve sainthood, I try to go to the sacraments and attend the sacraments, so I think the gentleman had a very good point with continuity because I think in a, a certain strength, the church was strong where it was more uh, based on the sacraments and a reverence for the sacraments. And I can, uh, I just want like the whole church, all Catholics not to be excluded. And I, uh, I don't want to throw out the past by bringing the present. I want to evangelize, but they had a lot of good converts in the past. And it seems like the, you even said Western Europe is losing the faith. So if you could um, just, uh, maybe you touched it, but I didn't quite understand it, but I, I, that gentleman that asked the very first question, 
I'm a, I am nervous, yeah. and I don't usually ask questions, but I, I thought that he made a good point, raised a point in my mind, that we should have a continuity in the Catholic Church to have a great Catholic identity so we, we become saints, and then we do evangelization because each one of us becomes a saint, and we just are very living our lives in a saintly way is it evangelizing. So if you could, sorry for the nervousness. No, no, that's fine. Thank you for raising that. Um, the sacraments are permanent features of the life of the church. So whether we're talking about the early church, the patristic church, the medieval church, the counter-reformation church, the church of the new evangelization, the sacraments are part of the Christ-given form or constitution of the church. But at different moments in the history of the church, there has been a high sacramental life and a somewhat lax sacramental life. There has been a rich understanding of the meaning of the sacraments and a diminished understanding of the meaning of the sacraments. One of, uh, in the book, Evangelical Catholicism, I talk about the Eucharistically centered life that is necessary for all of us to be missionary disciples. And I lift up the recovery in recent decades of the practice of Eucharistic adoration, which I think is essential uh, for the formation of missionary disciples. And interestingly enough, perhaps as an example of continuity, I illustrate that by a marvelous story about one of the great figures of counter-reformation uh, Catholicism, the Curie of Ars, St. John Vianney, who noticed that there was this old peasant who would come into the church at Ars, and he would sit there and he would stare at the tabernacle for hours never said anything. So after some time, John Vianney goes up to this chap as he's coming out and says, excuse me, what are you doing? And the man said, I look at him and he looks at me. Extraordinary statement of Eucharistic piety and a deep sacramental faith. That's the kind of sacramentally enriched Catholicism we need today, not the Eucharist as a weekly matter of, of legal obligation so much as the Eucharist as something we would literally crawl on our hands and knees to be present at, to share in, to receive as often as possible. So that's just one, one example of of uh, that. Um, Second Vatican Council called us to understand the sacraments not in almost mathematical terms, how much grace am I adding up here in my grace account, uh, but in terms of seven different ways of meeting the Lord which are available to us, at least several of them, on a very, very regular basis. Now, the other thing that I think is, I, I'll stop on this, um, I think is very important is that this enriched sacramental life in the church 
has to be matched to, uh, has to be complemented by an enriched biblical life in the church. We are living in a culture which is so deeply confused that people literally can't see things straight. This is manifest in the debate or non-debate over who can marry whom. I thought for 30 some years that one way to deal with that was by an appeal to the natural moral law, you know, which Catholics believe is somehow inscribed in us and which most normal people can get a sense of. This does not work anymore. If there's no human nature, if the, if the public culture does not concede that there is a human nature by which Bruce Jenner is Bruce, not Caitlin, then it's very difficult to appeal to the natural moral law, or what I have come to call deep truths inscribed in the world and in us. I even tried to get around the world, the word nature. It doesn't work. So in equipping the saints to convert the world, rescue the civilization, be the renewers of democracy. Church has to help the people see its people see things straight. And that means seeing them through lenses ground by biblical realism. That's why biblical preaching is so important, expository biblical preaching is so important. Just take this past Sunday. I'm sure there were a gazillion sermons given on the Petrine authority you know, after Peter's confession of faith. What really needs to be preached there is Peter's recognition that Jesus is the Lord of the world. He is the Christ, he is the Messiah. This is a new king. We have a whole new situation. Human history has been turned inside out and upside down. That's how we have to help people see things. Because if they don't, if we don't see the world through biblical eyes, the confusions of this Gnostic culture of everything is plastic and malleable and you can be whatever you want to be, uh, even in such basic questions as are you a man or a woman, is going to be humanly devastating, uh, as in fact it already has been. So sacraments and Bible, uh, two perennial parts of the church's life, but both uh, working in tandem uh, to renew a church, as Pope Francis puts it, permanently in mission. Thanks very much for having me here tonight. Hope to see you again. <laughs>